and welcome to the first in a new season of Biting Talk, Britain's liveliest food and drink show hosted by me, William Sitwell, Telegraph restaurant critic and food writer. This new tasty bunch of shows comes to you in association with Two Chicks Free Range Egg Whites. Two Chicks was founded by Anna and Alla, two chicks indeed, who felt it was time the nation, indeed the world, needed effortless egg whites packed in a cute carton and pasteurised. Perfect for your souffles, fluffy omelettes or cocktails. On this week's show, I catch up with the maverick restaurateur Tom Conran. He's had a tough year mourning his extraordinary father, Sir Terence, and facing a battle with Westminster Council, who decided to review the licence for his establishment, The Cow, on the edges of Notting Hill and Bayswater. I'll talk to Tom from his bolt hole in Grenada, if the line holds, about how he managed to successfully turn opinions about his apparent den of iniquity. Then, have you spotted any grey squirrels recently? You probably have, given their ever-increasing numbers. But what do you do when you see one? Toss it some bread? Or put the grill on while you retrieve your shotgun from the armoury? According to Annette Woolcock, she's the head of game at the British Association for Shooting and Conservation, we should be going for option B, or option B1, if you've got no legal weapons and head for your local game dealer for a pair of skinned squirrels. Annette's got recipes galore for grey squirrel. The question is, have you got the appetite for it? Then we chat with the brilliant chef Ashley Palmer-Watts, who, having quit heading up the kitchens of Heston Blumenthal's restaurant empire, is resting his chef whites and joining the coffee revolution. Finally, we drop into the House of Haydari, Britain's most luminous, or is that ludicrous, private bar. What does this mixologist Farhad Haydari have in store for us? Do stay with us. His cocktails might be unmixable, but they're never dull. But first up, and we glory in the wonders of technology, as Somerset says, come in Grenada. Well, my next guest is the son of one of the great designers, restaurateurs of our age. Uh, he's had a quite a year um, his father, the wonderful Terence Conran, died. He's had a struggle to reopen his uh, fantastic pub in Notting Hill, The Cow. The last time I spoke to him a few months ago, he was in Zawataneo, which I thought was a mythical place, but actually it's, it, it doesn't just exist on the Shawshank Redemption movie. It is a real place in Mexico. He's joining me now live from Granada in the Caribbean. It's a very warm welcome to Biting Talk to the fabulous Tom Conran. Hi, Tom. Hello, William. Now, lots of people, you know, knuckled down and just sat out the epidemic, the pandemic in London. Some people went to the country. You left the country. You've, you've been a very long way away from your beloved cow. I want to talk about the travails you've had there. Indeed. What are you doing in Grenada in the Caribbean, Tom Conran? I think they call it Grenada, but never mind. Um... <laughs> 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 I think Granada's in Spain, but uh, yes. So I think I was thinking of the TV company. <laughs> exactly, I remember those adverts. Um, as it was, we lo- we closed on the first lockdown two days before the prime minister made that obligatory, and went through the first lockdown, waiting for things to reopen. Uh, we reopened again, and then as we approached Christmas, things were tightening up in the UK, and we were forced to close again on the 18th of 
December. Christmas was looking bleak. As you mentioned, my father died and that sort of fractured the family a little bit. Um, we were all reeling a bit from his death and uh, unable to get together to mourn it properly. And as Christmas arrived, I was looking to spend Christmas alone. I had planned to go and see my kids in um, America. Their, their mother's American, and although they were brought up in the UK, they now live over there. Uh, so I was planning to go and see them and my then girlfriend, now fiance, Lauren, and spend some time with them. But as things worsened in the UK, I, I didn't savor the idea of another lockdown with my business closed. So I, I got out of the country and um, have just really been biding my time until we're able to reopen um, working daily, but uh, working from afar, planning to c come back to the UK on the 22nd of June after things are meant to be uh, opened up completely, but we'll wa watch and wait for that one. Yes. Now, before we chat about the cow and the, the difficulties you have with uh, Westminster Council, let's just reflect a bit more about your father. He was an extraordinary figure. I felt very lucky to have got to know him reasonably well. Um, I imagine his relationships with his children was was complex. You were, you were in the business with him for a time. Um, the early 2000s, you joined him worked with him. I imagine you got very, very close to him. You've obviously shared a lot of, you know, loves and passions for the for the restaurant industry. What were your kind of feelings when he died? Did you feel bereft? Did you feel sad? Did you feel uh, privileged that you were the son of this amazing man? How, how did you feel? How did you take it? You say that, you know, it was very difficult with the family. You weren't able to come together to mourn together, which must have been tough. I knew he'd been very ill for a long time. And, um, I visited him, you know, in the latter days of his life. Um, but I kept a constant uh, visitations with him for a couple of years, really, when he was pretty sick. I was, uh, I felt like I was handling it quite well. <laughs> but it, it is like a having an anchor tied to your legs or something that just takes you down to the, you know, not to the bottom, but close to the bottom um, over some time. Uh, and, you know, that, that only kind of unfolds as the months pass subsequent to his death. Initially, I, I felt some relief because I don't believe he was enjoying his time this last week, few weeks here. Um, and I was pleased, very pleased with the way the press reacted to his death and how many people came out and said that they were inspired by him and that it, he had done something terrific for the country. And I, I did feel a sense of pride that, you know, I was of his blood. <laughs> And uh, in him personally, and I know how hard he worked through his life to achieve what he did. So um, I, I was really thrilled with the reaction to that. I was also very delighted that he was honoured 
by the Queen and made a companion of the Queen, which is a very high honour. I understand it's perhaps the second highest honour in the country with only 50 people who have that honour. And his funeral service took place at Hampton Court, which was very, very, very beautiful send-off. So those, those aspects of his passing, what's the word? They, they, they made me feel, feel good about him and his, um, and his time with us. How, how was he as a father when you became a restaurateur yourself? Did you seek his advice or did you try and avoid it? That's a good question. I chose to get into the business initially because he wasn't in the business. He, he, at that time, it would have been the early 80s, 1980s. His trajectory was taking over the high street, really. <laughs> and uh, he just acquired Mother Care, BHS, other chain stores in order to realize his ambition. And he was not really involved so much in the restaurant business. Saying that, he, he always kept his toe in with the restaurants, with the Habitat Cafe, the Neal Street restaurant, and uh, other concerns that he had within his shops. However, at that time, it was before his big push on the London restaurants in the 90s. I love the fact that really you felt you got into the restaurant business before he did. <laughs> yeah, I did. I, I purposefully followed my mother uh, and what she was doing because she was a food correspondent for the Sunday Times and wrote a number of very good cookbooks. And I always admired her and her path, her direction, really. And me and my sister set up a little catering company called The Happy Palette when I was about 18 or something, but I couldn't cook. <laughs> uh, we did parties for people like Joseph, like black and white parties and things like that. And um, have, having triplets as waiters. <laughs> and we, did, we didn't have a clue what we were doing, so I thought I'd better go and learn how to cook. So I went to Paris. Yes, and you did. And you, 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 yes, you trained in Paris, and then you worked for uh, you know a number of um, you know very well known restaurateurs from Alistair Little. You worked at One Nine Two. Tell us about your little empire, because of course your your Notting Hill enclave, where where you established the Cow and your Deli, Tom's Deli, and Lucky Seven. The Cow has had a difficult time. Let's just deal with this issue. You had at Westminster Council. Uh, forcing you to battle for your survival, um, looking to review their licence uh, to you to operate under the grounds of prevention of public nuisance, public safety and the prevention of crime and disorder. Now, that sounds quite savage when you get hit with that. What on earth was going on at the cow? I feel there was a miscommunication and misunderstanding between ourselves and Westminster uh, that could well have been avoided. I don't feel that anything we did in particular was really bad. However, there were three incidents and um, I guess Westminster run a policy of three strikes and you're out. At the time that they were very concerned and upset with us, I didn't have a clue. And uh, they were communicating through my managers at the Cow, who 
relay the information to me, but it literally, it dropped into my inbox the day after my dad died. And perhaps the, the following couple of weeks, I didn't have my eye on the ball. Then the email kind of got sucked into my inbox and I didn't, didn't manage to retrieve it. And we were so busy at the time, I think it just got forgotten about until we got the, uh, the notice that our license was going to be reviewed. Did you think at that point that being fundamentally labelled as a den of iniquity which is really, I suppose, what it hints at. And of course, you tried to protest about that. Did you think that that that, that was it, that you were going to lose the cow or, or were you always convinced that you'd get enough support? Because sometimes it's quite hard to beat these bureaucratic institutions. And when, you, when you're told by some faceless bureaucrat on your email that, that you're facing closure, it's quite hard to battle and, and, and get a successful outcome, I would imagine. I, would, I agree with you with that and one of the things that i have always wished for is a better and more open lines of communication with the authorities i i hope and i believe that perhaps one of the good things that will come out of this apart from us being able to reopen again which is a a boon is that we will now be able to have proper grown-up conversations about concerns of Westminster licensing so that we don't fall foul of them in the future. And what do you think was the thing that saved you? Was it, was it your locals? Was it the regulars in the neighbourhood coming to your defence? Was it a bit of gentle arm twisting by yourself and your managers? I believe justice prevailed uh, in essence, uh, but I do wish to thank, you know, um, I'm... I'm very, very grateful to um, the public and our customers who, who took the time to uh, to communicate with Westminster and support us. We had over uh, 1,300 letters of support by the time the case came up. And um, we had a, a number of very significant people who supported us so that that became i think that really helped us i think that that was the deciding factor in the whole thing but i i think we got a chance through our lawyers to explain ourselves and 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 go through the particulars of each incident and in that way the panel um at westminster could see that these these issues could be resolved. Yeah. Now you say you're flying back on the on the 22nd of June, Tom. Let's hope you'll be there in the cow and free of masks. Um, there's some doubt, of course. What will you be ordering in the corner of that wonderful institution, the cow in on Westbourne Grove? Pint of Guinness, some razor clams. What's on the uh, menu? What's on? What's your wish list? <laughs> I think I'll be ordering oysters for sure, and all the seafood. I love the seafood. Saying that, there's no R in the month, but I eat oysters when there's a Y in the month. <laughs> I don't follow the R in the month. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm very keen to, to try the new chef, Matthew Harris's food. Yes, of course, this is very exciting. Henry Harris's brother, Matthew Harris, who worked 
for many years at Bibendum, where you worked actually for a time. Uh, what a coup. You've got him uh, in your kitchen. So congratulations. That's a very uh, exciting piece of news. Thanks very much. I'm, I'm thrilled. Uh, I feel that we've got a... We've got a quality chef who will cook food that matches the establishment, who understand, who's British and understands the sort of food that I want to put on the menu. We worked together before, as you say, back in 1987 at Michelin House in Babendum Restaurant. I was managing the Oyster Bar. And he was working as a chef under Simon Hopkinson and with his brother, Henry. We all come from the same stable, really. So we'll work very well together in the future. We'll develop the food at the cow to a new British standard. And we will hopefully be launching a new company called The Cow Comes Home, which is a delivery company um, for menu items, but also produce groceries from our shores great well listen lots to look forward to there we must end it there tom uh, congratulations on the reopening on the hiring of matthew harris and uh, i look forward to sharing a glass of guinness with you at the cow uh, before too long in june tom conran thank you thanks now if you're me and you see a gray squirrel in the garden you race to get your shotgun and try and put it out of its misery if, however, you are my next guest, you'll be urged, well, to put it out of its misery, but then not to just chuck it over the hedge or into the bin, but to take it into the kitchen and cook it. My great pleasure to welcome the head of wild food for the British Association for Shooting and Conservation, Annette Wilcock. Annette, welcome to Biting Talk. Thank you, and hello. So, listen, squirrels, I mean, I've seen them on sale in, in some markets. Uh, the red squirrels were supposed to preserve, although anyone who loves trees thinks that they shouldn't be. Um, the grey ones, well, we're rather overrun with them. Is the British palate, is the British taste up, do you think? Are they too squeamish to start eating squirrel? They, they do have a rather rodent nature to them. When you say to your friends and family, yeah, we need to eat them, what is their reaction? Be honest. Um, they're usually a bit, ooh, not sure. Um, but if I cook it for them, they're always pleasantly surprised about how well it tastes. So they, they soon get over that kind of fear of the unknown, um, especially if you sort of tell them it's a light meat. Uh, naturally, they compare it to sort of chicken. Um, I wouldn't compare it to chicken. I'd probably compare it to a subtle version of rabbit. Um, with a, it's a, quite a sweet meat with a, a hint of nuts, believe it or not. <laughs> And how do you cook your squirrel? Braised? Uh, do you fry confit? Um, what's what's the Annette Wilcock uh, go-to squirrel recipe? Well, my easy one is a Kentucky Fried Squirrel, which is basically just jointed squirrel um, sort of um, with panko uh, breadcrumbs and just deep fried for about 13 minutes with a really nice sort of mustard mayo or something like that. And that's the easiest version. And that's really nice. 
But you can do um, a really nice sort of casserole with it. It does have to be cooked if you're going to cook it that way for quite a long time. Um, and it, but it takes on herbs really nicely. So, for instance, if you did a potted squirrel, if you put sort of thyme and sage and a bay leaf and some rosemary and garlic and onion and everything in with it, it, it really absorbs those flavours and it's absolutely delicious. Okay. Why should we eat this, uh, this little creature, though? Uh, are we overrun with them? Do we need to get rid of squirrels? Are they attacking our trees? Um, should we be doing our duty for the British countryside and trying to get rid of as many, as, many as possible? Uh, I, we don't need to get rid of them. We just need to control them. Um, they do um, bring a, sort of a, a, a virus to um, the red squirrels, uh, which gives them lesions in their mouths, which unfortunately um, means they can't eat and they often starve. So... And they also eat the sort of bark of young shoots, which stunts or kills their growth. And they do quite a lot of damage to our fauna and flora in the countryside. So we don't need to eradicate them, but we do need to control them. And where did the grey squirrel come from? Because there's a, there's a lot of affection, of course, for the, for the red squirrel. Um, and I'd be interested to explore whether that's purely a, a kind of looks thing whether they're just a sort of sweeter looking thing than the, uh, you know, the rather more ubiquitous grey squirrel. How did they arrive on our shores and when did they start to attack the beautiful red ones? Well, they, they were sort of came in in the Victorian era from uh, North America. And um, they uh, very quickly, because they're uh, a lot hardier, they carry a, a lot more weight and so they're very hardy in the winter where our red squirrels aren't so hardy. And uh, so they just had uh, more resistance and they just, their populations just grew and grew. They carry this virus, which they're not affected by, which um, they transmitted to our, our red squirrels. And, um, and, and the red squirrel populations just dwindled from there on. And what's the great thing about the red squirrel? I mean, is it just because it's a cuter, slightly fluffier uh, animal? No, it's it's native um, to uh, Britain, um, which is why we like it, because it, it fits in with our biodiversity better. They don't do as the damage that the red squirrel, the grey squirrels do. So, they, you know, being native, they fit in with the environment and with the earth fauna and, flora and all the other species. Yes. And what, what's, um, what's the threat looking like these days? Because you very rarely see a red one. If you wanted to see a red one, where should we try and find one? Um, there are pockets of them that we're in, people are introducing them back into this country. Um, the Isle of Wight um, has a good red squirrel population and uh, Scotland uh, and some of Ireland do. But uh, the mainland England, unfortunately, for uh, unless you're in the very north, has has very few pockets of red squirrels anymore. And if we do you know, diminish the numbers of greys, will the reds come back gently or uh, uh, is it a much harder you know, uh, task to try and bring something back into a, to, uh, to, to, to the environment like that? It's, it's quite a hard task because although they can coexist together the young red squirrels uh the young males um don't seem to form the communities like uh the the gray squirrels do um so although they can exist together it's a bit of a tough job um so there it's easier when they're in pockets 
Now, Annette, I've got access to uh, uh, some armory. Uh, and if I see a gray squirrel and I shoot one, um, tell me, what's the best way of getting it from squirrel to my kitchen? What do I need to do with this thing? Um, you need to skin it while it's warm. They are notoriously hard to skin. So it is a lot easier if they are warm. So do that uh, almost immediately. And then just uh, as cool them as quickly as possible. So they're down to sort of below sort of five degrees. And then you can keep them until you're ready to do something with them. And obviously then uh, knit all of the skins together to make a very attractive rug or hanging. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and if you haven't got a shotgun and you don't have any squirrels around you, where can you buy squirrel from? Because I haven't seen many in Waitrose or Lidl or Aldi or anywhere like that. No, you won't. Um, the supermarkets do, don't stock them, but any good game dealer will. And you can get them online. Um, uh, for instance, the Wild Meat Company, I know, do a good stock of squirrels, so you can get them online there. Okay. And uh, how much for a brace of squirrel? Or a pair of squirrels. I don't know what the technical terminology is for two squirrels. <laughs> two squirrels are about £10. They're about £5 each. That's quite steep, I think, isn't it, for, you know, a little wild grey rodent? Well, it's, you know, they do take a lot of skinning and uh, we haven't got that many of them on the market. So that, that always makes them a premium. Well, listen, um, if people out there listening have been inspired, then congratulations to them. There are more recipes for uh, squirrel. Potted squirrel with chutney and toast and uh, other things like that. Where are these recipes? Tell me, Annette. They're on the Taste of Game website. Lovely. Well, listen, uh, I hope you've uh, you know got, got them ready for supper today uh, or Sunday lunch. Uh, is, there a day, is there a day of the week where uh, it's always squirrel supper in the Wilcock household? No, it tends to be it tends to be a week meal that one. Oh yes, not not a weekend meal. Yeah, yeah. When there's just a few of you around rather than a whole bunch of friends. Yes. Um, maybe on the barbecue over the summer. Yeah, with a little splash of rosé to get through the experience. Absolutely. I think we'll have to do some recipe development there and make some barbecue recipes. Exactly. That would be a very good idea. Uh, it's been wonderful to speak to you. You are Annette Wilcott from the British Association for Shooting and Conservation. Uh, thank you so much for coming on Biting Talk. Thank you. Well, I first met my next guest, I think around the time when Heston Blumenthal opened Dinner, his great restaurant in the Mandarin Oriental. And uh, Ashley Palmer Watts, of course, has gone on to become the chef director of the Fat Duck Group um, with impeccable timing. In January of last year, he quit for a new venture. And now here he is a year or so later on Biting Talk to talk about that venture. But it's a very big Biting Talk warm welcome to the chef, Ashley Palmer Watts. Hi, Ash. Hi there. How are you? I'm very well. Great to have you on the show. Tell me. Thank you. First of all, most chefs are probably thinking, God, what a wonderful time. How clever of you. Did you see the pandemic coming? Did you get the first whiff of a virus coming over from Wuhan? Or, you, or, or did you think, oh, my God, I should have stayed on and I could have taken the furlough for, for 12 months from, from Heston? No, I mean, God, what? no one saw this one coming, that's for sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, for once, uh, impeccable timing. But I mean, it's just, it's been so terrible, hasn't it, for for so many and you know still chatting to my friends and trying to talk them through stuff and just being there really for them you know to to moan and rant at pretty much mostly as they kind of navigate their way through but um have have felt a little bit guilty for not being as deep in it as everyone else I must admit and 12 months is is quite a while I mean you've launched your 
your new business or partnership, um, the Artisan Coffee Company, which obviously has been brewing ha 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 for quite a few years now. What have you been doing in the last year? Don't tell me you've just been uh, brewing coffee and experimenting, which actually I've, I've given your past and your the way you operate and your links to Heston, actually, I can probably believe that. You've just been making coffee for 12 months. Yeah, pr- I mean, pretty much. I mean, I sort of, when I when I joined the guys um, at Artisan Coffee Code, they had a lot of um, research, uh, you know, paid a huge amount of money for how people drink and how they interact with coffee at home. So I spent a lot of time reading, digesting, and then sort of how could I bring a new vision to this in, in a way that, you know, maybe someone hasn't brought it before. It's how you distill all that information, um, pretty much. And it was actually, you know, really, really inspiring quite early on to think, well, actually, you know, coffee is a very habitual thing. Um, there's, there's a huge amount of um, the nation that, that feel quite intimidated by, let's say, coffee talk in the same way that, that, that wine talk, you know, has its barriers with certain people that, you know, linking back to the restaurant, a sommelier's, you know, gr- great skill is actually linking into a level of, of communicating with the customer to make them feel at ease, to make, take them on a journey, whatever level of knowledge they have. So I think there was a lot of similarities um, between coffee and um, and that sort of barrier that was that was there. So, if I could bring some sort of um, way that we use techniques in the restaurant to talk to people in a way that is um, recognisable, it's familiar. Um, you can relate to it. You can imagine what things taste like. Then, you know, I think we can come to what is a crowd, very crowded market. Obviously, yes. I was going to ask that because some people might have thought, "Gosh, you're opening a coffee company." Isn't there every kind of coffee company, every ty- every kind of blend, every kind of bean uh, produced in every kind of pod, capsule, cafetiere, etc., are going? What is what's the corner of the market that you've spotted? Tell me. Well, we 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 want to make sure that this coffee is for everyone. So predominantly, it's at home. Um, but since launch, I mean, a lot of um, chef friends have I've sent stuff out to. They've contacted me and said, "Look, this sounds amazing." You know, not everyone is a coffee expert, and you know, I'm not a barista. I don't roast coffee, but what I do trade in is is how we can communicate, how we can uh, relate to taste and flavour, and use the sort of twenty years of my I call it my upbringing with Heston, which is, you know, half of my life pretty much um, into something to, you know, take down those barriers, encourage people along, take them on a bit of a journey. And in, I mean, it's, it's one of those ones where unless you can bring something unique to the table, it's, it's going to be difficult to tell your story. Right. And, um, you know, and I think then there was some innovation to be brought into um, into coffee for everyone. Um, but also, what I wanted to do was actually really champion blending. You know, and I, I, you know, I buy really expensive coffees, and I'm, you know, they call me a coffee nut, you know, in the group and and whatnot. And but I can also come down in the same way to cook fish and chips or a burger or a pizza, you know, but with the same attention to detail. So if we could do that for people, doesn't matter how they brew. And I think one of the one of the really surprising things was that most I think it was eighty percent of the coffee drunk at home in this country is bought as a ground product, which I just found staggering because obviously I'm in a bit of a niche. I'm in the restaurant, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it shows that we've got a long way to go um, to make people. You know, there's a lot of 
evolution in in the way that people drink coffee at home. So I thought that I could bring something quite quite unique to that, really. Yes. Do you think there'll always be a huge distance between one end of the market that simply likes their coffee white with one sugar and the other end of the market where there is a realization of the the depth of flavor and and so on that you can that you can discover would you wish to try and grab people who think there's only white or black and try and educate them gently in a way of opening their eyes to the different flavors or do you think sometimes you just have to leave some people alone you know because some people barely even you know there are there are friends of mine who can barely tell the difference between red and white wine Maybe they, we should just leave them alone and, and enjoy the complexities if we can understand it. Yeah, yeah. I think I think there's always going to be some people, and 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 it's very hard when you when you work so hard on something, you're so engrossed in it. When when you do have uh, an experience where someone's just not interested and they just like what they like, and that's absolutely fine because you know this is about taste and preference, and there's there's no right or wrong really you know um when it comes to quality and execution there's obviously right and wrong but actually what what tastes good for someone might not be someone else's taste so i think that's what led us to the to kind of launching with the six characters because i felt that they were although we're aiming at everyone they are coffees that span a range of taste, uh, fla- inherent natural flavors. You've got that intensity um, and a kind of a shape and a, and a feeling with them that you can relate to, rather than you know someone just thinking all oh, coffee tastes the same. Well, well, it, of course it doesn't. But in, in able to well for us to 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 get these characters to be really clean and bold and understandable and actually taste like they say on the on the packaging it was about it was a bit like champagne you know and championing blending so getting the absolute most out of every single bean that goes into the blend to make sure you're putting something together that is going to deliver what it says on the tin and so you you mentioned your six coffees there's the heroin the big shot the smart cookie the genius the enigma you've got a decaf the dreamer yeah uh quite interested in that um do you think it's really possible to to make a, a seriously good decaf, I've spoken to baristas who say it is. How do you do it? How do you take the caffeine out and keep the flavour in? Well, I mean, our decaf is a Swiss water decaf. So it's a it's a Swiss water process to remove the caffeine, which is much more lengthy. It's more expensive, um, but it's much more sympathetic to everything that you need to be in the coffee when you roast it, you know, without obviously without the caffeine. So, you know, it's it's one of those things where... We just want it to be a, a coffee that people go, oh, what, that's that's decaf? And you're like, yeah, it is decaf. And they're like, wow, I would never have said that. And I've had probably nine out of ten people say, what, that's decaf? Yep. No, I don't believe it. You know, and, and that's the thing, whether it's in a pod or it's a it's a whole bean espresso or a filter, you know, it's um obviously the finely tuned palettes, you know, like like the uh, the Q graders and stuff, they always can taste what's a decaf. You know, it's just they, they know, but they operate on that level and that sort of, you know, a bit, a bit like sommeliers. They operate at that that huge um, knowledge base and, and taste and flavour sort of archive in their brain to recognise it. Yeah. Now, how does the how does the coffee arrive? Are you getting beans? Are you getting um, pods? Uh, are you grinding the beans? Are you, are you relying on some people to 
do some grinding themselves? Yeah, so you, we do. I mean, if we start with espresso, so when I, when I talk about the six characters, what I wanted was that everyone that brewed in their own specific way at home, whether it be espresso machine, pod machine, cafetiere, um, you know, sort of Italian-style mocha pot, I wanted them to be, and a brewing cup bag as well, you know, for the ultimate convenience. I wanted them to be able to have the very, very best of a blend that hits those characters. So, for example, the the smart cookie might have uh, might be a blend of two coffees for espresso to hit those those notes of sort of cocoa, fragrant biscuit, sort of buttery honey fragrance. But it might be three or four coffees with a different roast profile for filter for example. So each one, depending on its brew type, has its own combination, its own recipe. So we get the very, very best out of every brew type. So we've got whole bean espresso. We've got uh, ground mocha in 30 gram sachets for the mocha pot stovetop thing. We've got pods. And then in filter, we've got whole bean. We've got ground sachets, um, which are 30 grams, which gives you a 500 mil cafetiere at French press. Um, we've got brewing cup bags, which is you know, a bit like a giant tea bag. Uh, you just pop it in, brew the coffee, four to five minutes, depending on how strong you, you want your coffee. Add milk, add sugar if you really do want to. There's no there's no right or wrong, but the only thing I, I sort of say to people is just give it a try without putting the sugar in, um, you know, before you do it. Because I, I've, I've spoken to a lot of people in the last 12 months and, you know, I've had some crazy conversations where, you say, right, how do you drink your coffee? Well, I have a couple of pods in the morning and it just gets me going before I go to work. And I'm thinking, right, okay. So do you put anything in it? Oh, yeah, I put a little dash of milk and I put two sugars in because, to be honest, I can't drink it otherwise. And I'm like, right, this is crazy. And this is very early on and I thought, do you know what? This is madness. Yeah, it's like like putting ice into your uh, into your wine or mixing it with Coke probably from a coffee uh, aficionado tell me ha- um are you getting into retail um third party supermarkets is it all bought via the artisancoffeeco.com website yeah it's all on the website at the moment um we we may go down a retailer um uh, route maybe one um but we're not heavily relying on that i mean it's you know there's there's some commercial things we have to get over uh, with retailers etc um but uh, yeah all online and it's about making sure i mean our ground coffee so to give you a bit of the innovation is if if someone's buying 250 grams of ground coffee for their cafetiere and they're just scooping it in or they're pouring it in and they're whacking the water in just by buying our coffee in 30 gram sachets and they're nitro flush so when the, the coffee is perfectly roasted it's ethically sourced. It's ground like with high-tech roller grinders, and then it's nitrogen flush. So it literally is in suspension. So the moment you open that packet, you're getting the best coffee from the first one to the last one. Whereas if you open the bag, you've just got all those sort of volatile aroma molecules um, disappearing, and oxygen doing its its damnedest to destroy your coffee. So just little bits and pieces make a much better coffee at home and i think if we can allow people to access better coffee at home from really no extra work that's that's a win now listen ashley um one year you've been out of the restaurants or actually more than that um for 20 years you cooked up snail porridge and heston's meat fruit have you missed doing those fancy dishes 
Or is that the sort of stuff you turn out for your friends at the weekend? Do you miss being a chefy chef, an experimental chef? Um, or has it been a wonderful catharsis not to have to do all that craziness for, 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 for over a year? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a great time. Um, you know, it's, you, you learn a lot about yourself because when you're in it, you're so engrossed in it. And, you know, I had the most incredible time at the Fat Duck. And, you know, I think, you know, I spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, that last 20 years. And in, in terms of sort of using an approach and, you know, like, like I say, my upbringing with Heston and the way that we approached cooking, you know, since the day I joined, you know, we were told we couldn't do that, shouldn't be doing that, shouldn't be doing that. But of course, if you can apply this, and this project has definitely been really, um, it ticks a lot of boxes, you know, asking why, why do we do it? Why, did, why is it normally done like that? Why Why can't we do this? And if we do this, and like, for example, I've been working with a guy at Zurich University on the freshness of coffee and sort of distilling all his almost life's work, um, really, in a, in a way that a chef thinks, which is a logical way of taking things apart and asking the question, why do we do it? And quite often or not, it's there's no real answer. It's just It just happens like that because that's the way it is. Um, which, you know, I think it's sort of bringing that into coffee was really, really appealing. For example, one of the co-founders, when I started, didn't think that he could really pick up natural inherent flavour characteristics in different coffees. He either liked coffee or he didn't, but wasn't really, let's say, confident about saying why he wouldn't like it. And I said, well, I don't believe that's true, and I'll show you why. So, we knocked up five, six blends, um, just sort of knocked them together. We didn't have our coffee at that time. We, you know, just started the process. And I bought a load of different Valrhona chocolates because I knew the way that we put desserts together, you buy a certain chocolate for one thing. So Manjari would be really fruit forward, 64%. Or you could have a caramelized chocolate or you've got the different white chocolates that give you different le levels of sweetness. Maybe one's a little bit more vanilla-y. And so I combined those chocolates with nuts, with malt, with raisins, with pecans, and made a little chocolate to go along with each blend that we cobbled together to prove the point that actually, when you have the chocolate with those same inherent characteristic and flavour notes as the coffee, it acts as a catalyst to allow you to go, do you know what? I actually get it. And wow, this makes perfect sense. In the same way that when, you know, in your world of wine, you say to someone, you know, this tastes like this, this and this, and they go, all oh, right, yeah, I get that. I might get one of them or I might get two of them, but it's it's helping people sort of realise they actually can taste the difference, you know? Yeah. Well, Ashley, thank you. Um, it's been wonderful chat chatting to you and um, long may you thrive and open the eyes and the ears and the, and the, and the noses of, of your customers <laughs> who just need to go to artisancoffeeco.com. They can subscribe or shop. Ashley Palmer-Watts, it's been a pleasure having you on Biting Talk. Thank you. Pleasure. And uh, best of luck with the business. Thank you. Bye-bye. Seasoned listeners, and let me tell you, you are not thin on the ground, I am very proud to say. We'll know that at the end of every episode of Biting Talk, there's one man who joins me. He joins me from his cocktail laboratory, his mixology machine. It is, of course, the one and only Farhad Heydari. Farhad, welcome back to a new season of Biting Talk. 
Absolutely delighted to be back on, William. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, whatever time you're listening. It's great to be back. Tell us uh, what you've been up to in about five seconds. We don't want to bore the world to tears. Apart from being on the golf course and being famous for shouting very loudly wherever you go, courtesy of me and the piece in the Telegraph, people are interested. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to be uh, busting down the uh, the levels on this particular uh, podcast. But no, all is great and good and delighted to be resuming this wonderful program with you, William. Now, OK, let's get to it. You've got a cocktail. There are speedy cocktails. That's what you uh, are famed for. What is this week's cocktail, Farhad? Well, after many months of cold and wet weather, we're celebrating the arrival of summer on these shores, William. And this drink is meant to inspire a flight of fancy, especially, of course, for many in the audience who have been marooned in lockdown for all these months. It's got a cross-Atlantic slant to it. It is, you ready for this? Drum roll, please. The new New York Sour. I nearly butchered that. And not to boast or bloviate, it is from there, the Big Apple, where I've just returned to answer your question long-windedly. Here's the recipe. We're going to take two ounces of Torquin's handcrafted Cornish dry gin. Hang on, who? Sorry, Torquin's. Do you, I think you mean Tarquins, but that's fine. That, that, that's fine. That's fine. Will, I mean, yeah. you know, let's not be nitpicking. <laughs> sorry, is, sorry to interrupt you. Right. Tarquins gin. How Ta- much was it? Sorry, I don't normally interrupt you, but I mean, uh, go on. Well, no, I mean, information has to be specific. We don't want to do any fake news. <laughs> Two ounces of that. And of course, uh, and Core Malls, to, uh, it's a location from where and to where many people have flocked during this uh, half term. And note, it's yeah, not on, the, it's not it. the sea dog. It. It's not the name. Navy strength one. That's a bit too bold for us. Then we're going to take three quarters of an ounce of uh, sour cherry cordial, cordial for that matter, a quarter of an ounce of com- combier l'original, and a half an ounce of fresh lemon juice. All of those ingredients go into our trusty shaker filled with ice, uh, filtered water, of course, uh, uh, is where the ice is derived from. And we shake, and we shake well. We shake until we can't hold that shaker anymore. We strain it into a Collins glass. Add club soda to top. I guess that's your tonic water. Is that correct, Mr. Sitwell? Uh, no, I'd call it soda water. I mean, it's either soda water. Tonic water is not soda water. There's a lot of fact-checking going on in this particular episode. And then we <laughs> garnish that with a lemon twist and boom! That's your new New York sour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Britain's most impossible uh, mixologist. I didn't get any of that and I haven't got any of those ingredients. Can I just do it with gin and ice? Uh, and some uh, soda water. And some lemon juice, sure. You're going to knock yourself out. <laughs> Listen, next time, uh, I'm hoping you're going to use uh, our friend's two chicks. I think we need to use some of that frothy egg white. I think that's, I feel a, a gin sour or something uh, coming on that, uh, with, with that ingredient. Yep, will you do that for us next week? Absolutely. We're, 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 we're at work at the House of Hidari uh, perfecting that recipe. Okay, great. Just quickly before you go, because I know you always listen to the show as well. Uh, one highlight for you, and maybe maybe I should push you. Will you be visiting the cow? Uh, are you going to be buying squirrel to put on the barbecue this summer? Um, I certainly will not be buying squirrel, but um, uh, being a local to the cow, uh, we all signed uh, the petition and we're delighted to hear that uh, it will be reopening and we will be frequenting and purveying that uh, with uh, with uh, reckless and regular abandon. Yeah, well, not too much reckless abandon because that's what forced the place to shut in the first place. <laughs> Farhad Heydari. Thank you, Farhad. Check his Instagram for the full recipe. 
That's it for this week's show. My thanks to all my guests and to Two Chicks. Find them as Two Chicks Products on Instagram. If you want delightfully frothy, sours, perfectly baked meringues, super speedy omelettes with no messy cracking or wasted yolks, break out of your shell and get a carton of the white stuff. Biting Talk is a front ear production. I'm William Sitwell. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next time.